Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, as usual. And we have the privilege to talk with Jesse Owen today. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. And Dr. Owen, since you are a first-time interviewee to the podcast, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself before we start talking about a Baptist whom I'm not going to name yet because um, of our second question, which we have coming forth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I pastor Emanuel Church in Gallatin, Tennessee. Uh, Gallatin is just about 30 minutes north of Nashville. The church I pastor is a church we planted in the summer of 2016, and so I serve as pastor there. I'm also the assistant professor of historical and systematic theology at Welch College, which is also in Gallatin, Tennessee, and then I am the program coordinator for, uh, we have a Master of Arts program in theology and ministry, and I'm the program coordinator for that. I did my undergrad at Welch College, and then my MDiv at Southern Seminary in Louisville, and then I did my PhD at Southern Seminary as well uh, in historical theology. Uh, my dissertation was on the Salters Hall controversy of 1719, and I wrote that under uh, Michael Haken, who was uh, was great. And then I had uh, Tom Nettles and Sean Wright on my committee, so it was a great experience. Well, as Austin said, the first question we're going to have about the person we're discussing is how do we properly pronounce his last name. His first name is Thomas, but how do we pronounce his last name? Yeah, I think the pronunciation is Helwis. Um, in some other phonetic spellings that I've seen of the name, uh, it would seem that that is the pronunciation, but uh, maybe someone else will write in or uh, email in and, and correct me. But I think it's Helwis. So um, we like to do Baptist biographies here. We're thankful to have you on the Covenant podcast today. Can you just uh, begin our conversation by a graphical sketch on Thomas Helwes. Yeah, I think if I were to give a summary of Thomas Helwes, I would say he's a General Baptist pastor, a General Baptist theologian, and then a defender of universal religious toleration. Um, his dates are 1575 to sometime around 1615. He's born in Nottingham, England at Broxtow Hall. Uh, he inherits Broxtow Hall in 1590 after the death of, death of his father. Uh, for a period of time, uh, I think sometime around 1593, 1595 in there, he studied law at Gray's Inn in London, and then he came home in December of 1595 to marry Joan Ashmore, and the two took up residence in Broxtow Hall. Um, it may have been that while Helwes was in London at Gray's Inn that he encountered um, some separatist teachings. Uh, certainly, he would have been aware of Puritan ideas, uh, but he remains within the Church of England until 1607. Um, he embraces Puritanism and then uh, eventually separatism, but he inv- embraces separatism through the influence of John Smith. And so John Smith is convalescing at Broxtow Hall uh, sometime around 1607. He's taken up temporary residence there. Uh, Smith has been educated at Christ College, Cambridge, is an ordained Anglican priest. Uh, he embraced separatism probably sometime around 1606. But Smith and Helwes, um begin to interact, and I think Helwes is influenced by Smith, 
Uh, they are involved in the Gainsborough and Scrooby congregations, uh, the separatist congregations. Uh, and then uh, eventually they flee persecution sometime around 1607. Uh, they sail for Holland. The two groups sort of remain separate. Uh, but while they're there, uh, Smith and Howis embrace Baptist ideas on believers' baptism uh, and uh, not believing that the Church of England was a true church. They, uh, Smith baptizes himself, and then he baptizes Thomas Helwes. Um, so they embrace separatist ideas, and then believers' baptism become Baptists. Uh, the two eventually have their own issues um, as far as uh, some conflict, some theological conflict with one another. Smith uh, comes to the conclusion that the Mennonites there that they encounter uh, are a true church and that he shouldn't have baptized himself, and so he seeks uh, to join with the Mennonite congregation there. Um, and Hellas is concerned about this. Uh, Hellas is concerned about uh, some of the beliefs of the Mennonites, not only on ecclesiology, but also on Christology. And so Smith and Hellas kind of go their separate ways. And Smith is, or Hellas is more mature theology as it begins to develop sometime around 1610, 1611, um, is actually in response to some of the concerns that he has uh, with John Smith. Uh, Helwes decides that he can't stay in uh, Holland, that he needs to go back to England. And so uh, a group that has stayed with Helwes uh, in the midst of the Helwes-Smith split goes back to England, and they form a Baptist congregation there in Spitalfields, uh, there near London. And uh, it's the first Baptist congregation on English soil. Uh, we think Helwes is imprisoned for his... Um, his writings against the Church of England and his Baptist sentiments, and he's placed in prison, and he dies sometime in, in prison, sometime around 1615, 1616. Uh, so that's kind of a, a general uh, biography. You, you mentioned how John Smith in the beginning was an influence upon Helwes. Um, what other figures influenced him? Yeah, you know, the, the issue of influence, I would say, in historiography is always a difficult one. Unless someone tells us who they're directly influenced by, it can, it can be very difficult. Or um, if we see some clear references to uh, maybe particular works, then it's easier to identify influence. Certainly, uh, Helwes is influenced by Smith. Uh, he's likely influenced by some other separatists, maybe uh, others within the Gainsborough and then the Scrooby congregations. I, th I think he's probably influenced by them as well. Um, Helwes had began as, as uh, a Puritan, within the, he was within the Church of England, and then as a separatist. So I think in many ways he probably would have been influenced by um, much of what he would have seen in Puritan and separatist writings elsewhere. Um, but it's, it's difficult to say what, what all of the influences are on him theologically. But again, he is initially influenced by Smith. But by 1610, 1611, there are some significant differences uh, between the two. And, um, and, and and really the basis for their separation. Um, Helwes has an early confession that he writes uh, sometime around 1610. Um, and uh, then there's a second confession that he has, a declaration of faith of English people remaining at Amsterdam and Holland. And it's in that second confession of faith that you see um, some significant development. I would say um, Helwes' theology becomes much more reformed as he uh, separates from Smith and then sets himself apart from some of the concerns that he has 
from Smith, and he lays out a very clear, uh, I would say, Chalcedonian Christology in response to what it seems like Smith has embraced something like, um, there are debates on what we should call it, but let's say Hoffmanite Christology is the term commonly used. And so Smith uh, seems to think, along with the Mennonites there, that Christ has not received his flesh from the Virgin Mary, but instead uh, has some sort of celestial flesh uh, given to him by, uh, by God in the womb. And so Hellas is deeply concerned about these things, and that appears in, in his Confessions of Faith. Hmm. Um, moving the conversation on and shifting gears a little bit, Dewey, Jimmy, and I all confess the Second London Confession of Faith. And so this question, uh, for many of our audience, we, we would think that some of our audience does at least confess Second London. Why should particular Baptists study general Baptists like Thomas Helwes? And what commonalities might we have with this historical Baptist? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, in many ways... Um, it depends in part upon your interests. Um, if you're interested in Baptist historiography, then especially in the 17th century, then I would say if you're interested in Baptist historiography in the 17th century, then you need to know something about uh, these important 17th century Baptists. So I would say in my own experience um, that um, my interests are primarily in the English General Baptist and in the 17th and early 18th century but I've spent a significant amount of time looking at the Second London Confession and thinking about Keach and Kiffin and others. And so if you're interested in it from a historical theological perspective, then, um, then I think it's sort of doing our due diligence uh, when we're trying to think about the Baptist tradition to take into account uh, some of these earliest Baptists and Hellwes would certainly be one of them in the English context. So that would be part of it. Um, I would say further from a sort of Baptist historical theological perspective, it's important for me to know what uh, the Second London taught and what English particular Baptists taught, um, because I, I want to understand some of the, the texture and the nuances and maybe some of the commonalities and differences between the English particular Baptist and the English general Baptist. And so I would say um, that's important as well. Um, as far as commonalities, um, you know, in, in Helwes, there is a lot to admire about Helwes's Baptist polity. Um, he very clearly affirms believer's baptism and believer's baptism as a prerequisite for church membership and gathering churches around a confession of faith, which comes out in, I think it's point 10 of the Declaration of Faith of English People Remaining in Amsterdam. And so his Baptist polity is good. You know, Helwes is responding to what he sees in the Church of England. He, he doesn't think that the Church of England is a true church because it hasn't separated itself enough from Rome. It's retained uh, infant baptism. And he doesn't think that uh, the Puritans have gotten it right by remaining within the Church of England. Um, responding to the separatists, he doesn't think that they've reformed themselves enough because they have retained infant baptism. And so Helwes on Baptist polity is extremely helpful when we're thinking about what is the nature of a true church. And I would say for all that Smith gets wrong, by the way, um, his character of the beast is actually also a helpful work for considering the nature of a true church and Baptist polity. But anyways, on Helwes, um, I think he's particularly helpful in that area. I would also say on religious toleration. 
Um, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of discussions recently on what we should think about religious toleration and what we should think about Baptist polity and what historic Baptist polity uh, is. But what Hellas makes very clear is that there are two realms. And he thinks about the realm of the king or the magistrate, and the king has the right to rule in his realm and with his, within his kingdom. But within the realm of belief and of the faith, Hellas believes that this is the realm of Jesus Christ and that no one can compel men or women to believe anything against their conscience. And so Hellas argues for, and I think presents probably the earliest argument for, I think what we could call religious, universal religious toleration. So sometimes uh, people will look at later figures like Thomas Hobbes, uh, John Locke, and others and say, hey, here are people who are arguing for religious liberty. Well, in the early 1600s, Hellas is arguing for universal religious toleration. And it's not based upon enlightenment principles. It is based on what he sees in the text of scripture. He, he's not drawing from Locke 80 years prior to the writings of John Locke on toleration. Uh, this is what he finds in the Bible. And so I would say to Baptists, um, read Helwis on religious toleration. Um, I, th- I think he makes some great arguments, not only for what a true church is, uh, but for why we should believe that it is not the responsibility of the state uh, or of the magistrate to compel men's conscience to uh, belief. And so Helwis extended this beyond, by the way, uh, the act of toleration in 16. 16- uh, 89, he extended it beyond what that would do and extended it even to, uh, he would say, heretics, Turks, and Jews. Uh, so I think he's helpful in this area. I also think that Hellas is admirable and helpful on religious, uh, not only religious toleration, but um, affirming Baptist principles and beliefs, uh, even when it sort of cost him his own life. Um, it's not easy for Hellas in the early 17th century to affirm Baptist principles. It's not easy for him to, having fled England, to then return to England to establish that church there in Spitalfields. Uh, he's placed in prison and then he ultimately dies there. And so I think there's something we can learn from Helwes about uh, his conviction and his willingness to uh, stick with those convictions and what he thinks the teachings of scripture are, uh, even when um, he faces death, ultimately. So I would say to um, those who affirm the 1689, who are um, um, Calvinist Baptists, I would say uh, these are important reasons for looking at uh, Thomas Helwes uh, and maybe the general Baptist tradition in general. Uh, in 1660, you have what is often referred to as a brief confession or the standard confession, and it is presented to Charles II with the restoration uh, of the monarchy. And if you go and look at that, you can see very clearly those general Baptists there say, hey, um, we've presented this confession of faith to you. These are our beliefs. We're placing them in the public. We're placing them in open. We see ourselves in continuity uh, with much of the Reformation and the Reformed tradition. But these are our beliefs. And uh, this is what we think Scripture teaches. And we affirm them and we're we're putting them before you. We want to be faithful uh, subjects to you. But in these matters of belief, we're, we're sticking with this, even if it requires that we die. And so um, I think all of these things are, are very commendable uh, and things that, that your listeners would be interested in. I appreciate you giving many, many ample reasons to, as particular Baptists such as us, 
should and ought to study General Baptist. In addition, or the next question, can you tell our audience a little bit about the Orthodox Creed and what type of influence did Helwes have on the General Baptist movement as it went on after him? And did he influence any of the people who would later sign this creed? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, there, there aren't a lot of English General Baptists that I've seen in the 17th century that are actually quoting Helwes. However, if you go and you look at an Orthodox creed, I think what you find in an Orthodox creed is um, a confession that is very rigorous, I think fits squarely within the Reformed tradition on many matters, uh, many theological points, uh, and is responding to some particular controversy, some Christological controversy uh, that's been going on sometimes since around probably the 1650s, but going into the 1670s. And uh, Helwes's willingness to use language like substance and essence what we often think of as sort of philosophical or extra-biblical theological terms, which he used to defend uh, the incarnation, you see some of that in an Orthodox creed as well. Now, I can't say that they drew that directly from him, but I do think you see some commonalities there. Um, an Orthodox creed is written in, uh, is published in the late 1670s, and it is it comes primarily from the Midlands General Baptist, uh, some General Baptists in, in the Midlands there, in England. And I think it's penned primarily, written primarily by uh, an English General Baptist by the name of Thomas Monk. Uh, he also has a work called A Cure for the Cankering Error of the New Eutychians, which is a fantastic title. Um, but the reason I mention that is because uh, that work and an Orthodox Creed are written within the context of some controversy. And the controversy is surrounding Matthew Caffin. Uh, who is a General Baptist minister, and there's some concerns about Caffin's Christology and whether or not Caffin teaches uh, something similar to what Smith believed in, in Hoffmanite Christology. Again, there's some debate on what exactly Caffin's Christology is, what we should call it. Um, but anyways, Monk is concerned about that, as are these other General Baptists. And what they do is they respond, Monk uh, by himself in a cure for the cankering error of the New Eutychians, and then in the publication of their Confession of Faith and Orthodox Creed, uh, with what I like to describe as sort of a full-on creedal assault on heterodox Christology. And so you see this in Cure for the Cankering Error, and you see it in an Orthodox Creed. In fact, the first um, several um, points in an Orthodox Creed, the several first several statements there, are in response to heretical Christology. And setting out what I think is a very clear affirmation of the Christology of the Council of Chalcedon and the Chalcedonian definition. Uh, and so they just draw heavily on this to, to affirm a biblical Christology. So we have to understand it within that conflict and within that context. I'm always amazed, by the way, when I think about an Orthodox creed and when I think about uh, monks cure for the cankering error. Um, from all that we can tell, Monk is comes from a farming family, uh, is a minister, isn't uh, formally educated in any significant way. In any significant way, of course, dissenters uh, wouldn't have had access uh, to uh, to the universities uh, in the same way. Um, but here he is 
drawing on much of the Christian tradition of the early creeds and councils, and even drawing on the Reformed tradition to respond to this heterodox teaching of Matthew Caffin uh, in these two documents. And so, uh, so I'm always stunned by uh, his ability there to do that. I tell students in class, sometimes when I teach systematic theology, you know, sometimes we're tempted to say this is too complex, or I can't make sense of this, or how are average people to make sense of this, or what are they to do with this? And I remind them of not only General Baptist, but of particular Baptists in places like 17th century England that did not have access to a formal education, but are able to draw on the creeds and councils and much within the Christian and the Reformed tradition to put forth an Orthodox faith. And so I tell them you're very much capable uh, of doing this as well. Uh, Of course, thinking about Paul writing his epistles uh, as well, right? Um, So... I think what we find in those who subscribe to an Orthodox creed, which is a segment of General Baptist, um, there is the General Assembly of General Baptist. There's later a split of the General Assembly, and you have the General Assembly and the General Association in the 1690s, and they're split over this Caffin issue and how they should respond. I think what you see in Thomas Monk and the tradition of the Midlands General Baptist in an Orthodox creed is that they are extremely willing to use all of the language and tools available to them, including extra biblical language, including words like consubstantial and coessential and essence and all of these things to defend the doctrine of the Trinity and particularly the person of Christ. So I think you see something that, of that in Helwes uh, that is picked up in Thomas Monk, the Midland Journal Baptist, uh, and an Orthodox Creed as well. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, I, I would guess that there are many of our listeners also that just don't know exactly where to go to learn more about this general Baptist. And so what would you recommend, um, for our listeners, where would you recommend they go to further study the life and the theology of Helwis? Um, what are some of his more important works that you would recommend for primary biographies or secondary resources about him, where would you recommend study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say for the theology of Helwes and the theology of the English General Baptist, um, Matthew Pinson, uh, who's the president actually of Welch College here, has a collection of essays uh, that deal with the writings of Thomas Grantham, one of the foremost English General Baptists, but also Thomas Helwes and some others. Uh, He has a collection of essays in a book called Arminian and Baptist, Um, And I think the subtitle is Explorations in a Theological Tradition. And so there you can encounter, I think, some of the theology of the English General Baptist uh, in some essay format that that I think is helpful. Uh, There is a recent historical um, work on Helwes, uh, looking at some new details about his life, uh, published by Larry Kreitzer, written by Larry Kreitzer, published by Regents Park um, at Oxford in the Center for Baptist Studies there. Um, I think the title is Thomas Helwes in His World, which is a similar title uh, actually to the work that Kreitzer has done on Kiffin and his world. I think there are multiple volumes in the Kiffin set. There's only one right now in Helwes. But I would say if you're interested in reading Helwes and you want to read the primary sources, there is a publication of um, some of the of, of Helwes's primary source works, his primary works that's published by Mercer University Press. And it's edited by Joe Early Jr. Uh, it's in the Early, Early English Baptist text series. 
And the title of it is The Life and Writings of Thomas Helwes. So if you want to go and read Helwes for himself, uh, and there's some biographical detail and some commentary as well, it's uh, sort of a critical edition of his works, then I would say The Life and Writings of Thomas Helwes, uh, edited by Joe uh, Early Jr. Early Jr. is a great place to go. Um, we also have, uh, I contribute to the Helwes Society Forum, and we've done some historical theological work there that we don't just do historical theology, we do some other stuff related to ministry. Um, if you were to go there and to type in Helwes or English General Baptist, you can see some stuff that I've written as well as some others. Uh, the URL for that is thehsf.com. What final encouragements do you have concerning General Baptist as well as Thomas Helwes for our audience? Yeah. Well, I, th I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Um, I, I would say to, to those who are interest in, interested in particular Baptists or in, in Baptist studies or Baptist historiography, uh, Baptist historical theology, um, I, I would consider reading, maybe first and foremost, go and look at an Orthodox creed. Um, I would like to know um, what people think of an Orthodox creed when they read it. I think sometimes it's, it's possible. Uh, we all sort of get in our circles and in our silos, uh, and we have certain conceptions um, about what the particular Baptists are or what the general Baptists are. And uh, I think around the general Baptists in Baptist historiography and sometimes in Baptist history classes, it's a little bit too easy to give something of a decline narrative for the English general Baptists. So you have Helwes and then you have Smith and it's like, okay, we'll see you have some heterodox Christology here in Smith, or you get to the 1670s and you say, okay, so here we have Matthew Caffin and the Caffin controversy and, and go to Salter's hall in 1719. And you'll see that the majority of the general Baptists there were non-subscribers at Salter's hall, this debate about the doctrine of the Trinity. And so it's, it's common to give sort of this decline narrative where we don't really engage the life and writings of the English General Baptist, or we simply say that, you know, here the English General Baptist, maybe they were the earliest uh, of the Baptists, but they kind of slid quickly into heterodoxy and then disappeared in the 18th century. Um, I think that's very oversimplified, um, and I don't think it does justice to the English General Baptist and, and really to Baptist historiography. So I would say go and read the writings of Thomas Helwes in this work, but look at an Orthodox creed. Um, look at a standard confession or a brief confession. But I think your, your listeners will be most surprised if they look at the theology of an Orthodox creed uh, and, it, and really how reformed it is on uh, various aspects uh, of soteriology. I, I think it will be surprising. So I would say uh, go there and, and, give, uh, and give that a look. Um, when you and all, when we were talking beforehand, uh, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about our mutual friend, Jake Stone. And, and that's one of the things that he and I have kind of gone back and forth on and have talked about uh, over the last couple of years is not oversimplifying history, not oversimplifying our traditions, but trying to take one another seriously and trying to take our tradition seriously and to um, not merely dismiss particular Baptists or not merely dismiss general Baptists. Um, but to consider them on their own merits, on their own terms, uh, realizing that neither of these groups are perfect, that they have their own flaws and failings and their own heretics uh, among them. Um, but there is something very helpful and something very redemptive 
uh, and a lot that we can learn and apply to um, to our denominations or associations, our local churches uh, in the 21st century, 21st century. So I would say don't overlook the general Baptist there. Amen. Amen. We have been talking with Dr. Jesse Owens about Thomas Helwes and, and general Baptist more in general. Thank you for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Owens. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. And to our listeners, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.